This morning we're going to celebrate the life of another, and that is, or several. Uh, this is Joseph, and we're in the middle of his story, chapter 41 of Genesis, beginning in verse 37. Genesis 41, beginning in verse 37, he's just interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, and we read this. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of the people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him with garments of fine linen and put a golden chain around his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him all over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphaniah Paniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And so Joseph went over the land, out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all of the food in those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields surrounding it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for he could not measure it. it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Two years ago, William Haddad died at age 92. Most of you in this room don't know who he is, and until a few years ago, I didn't know him either. He was a political operative, he was a lobbyist. He was a campaign manager. He was a prominent name in Washington, D.C. But in all of the years of his life, his greatest achievement came in the Kennedy administration. That's John F. Kennedy. There he helped launch the Peace Corps. He helped shape the presidential campaign of Jack and Bobby Kennedy. But of all of the things he did, there's one story of William Haddad that I have never forgotten, and that happened a week after the Kennedy was shot, after the president was shot in Dallas. Haddad was in Hyannisport at the Kennedy compound. All of the family had gathered together there, and there were tears 
And there were stories. There was heartbreak. And as they sat around the living room, Haddad was seated in a chair, and all at once, President Kennedy's son, John John, got up, three years old, walked over to William Haddad, looked him in the eye, and said, Are you a daddy? Haddad paused a minute, said, Yes, I'm a daddy. John John said, then will you throw me up in the air? There's an old adage that all of us have heard, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And yet today, most psychologists will tell you that it's not the mother that shapes the identity and a child's sense of worth, it's the father. I have a friend who's been a psychologist for 45 years. I remember him saying one time, if I had five minutes with a patient, I'd ask him one question, tell me about your dad. This week I read about a man whose father died when he was 31. He said, for 31 years I had my dad, now he's gone. We buried his body under a big old oak tree in West Texas. Seems strange that he isn't here. My dad was always there. He's always close by. He never traveled much. He was always present. During my turbulent years, my dad's life was something that was predictable to me. Girlfriends came and went, my dad stayed. That's why at the end of August, every year as the season begins to change, I feel so alone. The winds of age have swallowed the flame, leaving only golden embers behind. But there's something strange about those embers. You stir them just a little bit, and it'll knock the chill off the air, and it will remind me that he's still with me. I wonder if Manasseh and Ephraim ever felt that way. I bet they did. I mean, think of this. Right in the middle of the Joseph story, in his rise from a dungeon to a palace, God decides to tell us in a couple of sentences that Joseph became a father. I mean, you can read right over it, but you shouldn't read right over it. This is significant. God in his wisdom not only shows us Joseph as a prisoner, as an interpreter, as the prime minister of Egypt, he also shows us a picture of what a godly father is. And when I read the Joseph story, I make a clear distinction between 
what a lot of us think is a godly father and what a godly father really is. It's right here in this story. So on this Sunday morning when we gave Bibles and we had parents and children stand here, mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, I can't think of a better time to dig into this text, and so let's do it. First of all, notice Joseph's descent. Look at verses 39 and 40. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all of my people. You shall order them. They, their lives will be ordered by your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. In other words, in 13 years, Joseph goes from a pit sold as a slave to the palace of Pharaoh. He goes from a prison slave to a palace sovereign in 13 years. It's been 13 years. His brother sold him when he was 17, now he's 30. 13 years of abuse. 13 years in the dirt. 13 years of false charges made against him. But had it happened any earlier, he might have forgotten his struggles. I mean, just think if he had interpreted that dream a couple of months into his his prison sentence. He might have forgotten where he came from. I had a professor at Princeton once say, no one is fit to preach unless they've lived a little, loved a little, and died a little. That goes not only for preachers, it goes for dads. No man's fit to be a godly father until he's lived a little, loved a little, and died a little. Martin Priest once wrote, I owe what I am to my father. He was a pattern maker in the garment district in New York City. But he made better lives, patterns for life than he did for garments. I used to say to my dad every once in a while, hey dad, can I borrow ten bucks? He'd give me five. And one day I said to my dad, dad, I need five hundred dollars, can you give it to me? And the next morning it was on top of my wallet. So I went to my dad and I said, what's up with this? I asked for 10, you give me 5. I asked for 500, you give me the whole thing. I'll never forget his answer. He said, when you asked me for 10, I knew it was for nonsense. But when you ask me for 500, I know you're in trouble. And I know what it's like to be in trouble. So did Joseph. He never forgets it. J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, was once asked, to what do you attribute your success? He said, watching my mother die. For in her pain, I saw the softness of her eyes. Manasseh and Ephraim could say the same thing. 
For the godliness of Joseph is not measured by his morality or his achievements. It's measured by his ability to remember his pain. He let it soften his heart. And that's true of any godly father. Second, notice his dress. Look at verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of, is the Spirit of God? And then in verse 41, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. This is the third time in the Bible we read about the Spirit of God. The first time is in chapter 1 of Genesis. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the ruin and wreck, over the deep. The second time we read it is when God says in His wisdom, my spirit will no longer contend with man, and that's before He sends the flood. But this is the third time. This is the third time we read about the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, in the Bible, the third time was, is always the most important time. Remember when Jesus told the greatest story ever told? It has three parts. Luke chapter 15, he talked about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and then that's simply the drum roll. We get to the drama, and that's the two lost sons. Remember the audience is the Pharisees. They're challenging Jesus. So Jesus talks about lostness, a sheep and a coin, and then you. You see, in the Bible, the third is always the most significant, and so that's exactly what we have here. We have three dreams. We have the dream of the cupbearer, we have the dream of the baker, and now we have the dream of the Pharaoh, and that's the most important one because that's the one in which change occurs. It's in the interpretation of that dream that the pagan king of Egypt identifies the Spirit of God. Think of it. A pagan king names the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God now is not hovering over the face of the deep. It's not contending with the wickedness of men. The Spirit of God is doing something it's never done before. He's never done before, and that is he's inhabiting a man, a former slave, a prisoner, the son of Jacob whose name is Joseph. And notice that Pharaoh doesn't just acknowledge that truth. He acquiesces to it. He puts his money where his mouth is. He begins to dress up this man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. He puts his ring on his finger, meaning you have the opportunity to have anything in this kingdom that is mine. He puts his robe on him of the finest linen. He puts a collar of gold around his neck, and he gives him a royal chariot. And everywhere he goes, people will know that he represents Pharaoh. But that's not all he does. He also gives him a new name. Joseph means God will add. zephanath Paniah means this is the one who hears and speaks. Do you see what we have here? We have a perfect portrait of every Christian. Jesus has put his ring on your finger. He has given you his robe. 
You are co-heirs with Christ. You have a golden collar around your neck. You're riding with him in your chariot, but he's also giving you a new name. He's given you a name that identifies that it's all God's doing. Your name now is Little Christ Christian because you've heard his voice and you can speak of all that he's done. And you know what he's done for you? He's lifted you out of the pit. He's freed you from slavery and bondage. He's given you a new title. He's given you something to speak that's not simply your own ideas. He's enabled you to see that it's all Him and it's not you. And so you can come to anyone and say, it's not about me, it's all about Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think after getting the ring and the robe and the collar and the chariot and the new name, do you think for one minute that Joseph would say, I earn this? <laughs> do you think for one minute he would say, this is because of my goodness? Not on your life. And that's what every godly father knows. You haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. I was with a guy last night, he talked about his brother-in-law just selling a business down in Atlanta for a quarter of a billion dollars. He started it 10 years ago. He's going to move to St. Andrews, Scotland and build a house right on the golf course. I didn't tell him that that's the, the most frequent place for suicide. <laughs> Not because of the golf, but because of the weather. But as he talked, he said, isn't that guy successful? Look what he's done. He's pulled himself up. And I wanted to say to him, but I didn't. It's all grace, buddy. One little brain cell dislodges. One little word of God spoken. And it's all gone. Joseph knows it. So does every godly father. Then third, notice the deliverance. Look at verses 50 and 51. Before the year the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphira, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Do you see what he's saying here? Do you see what the Spirit of God has done in Joseph? He's made him forgive and forget. He names his first son, I've forgotten. Everything that's bad that's happened to me, I forget it. I forgive it. It's blown away by the grace of God. All of, of all the marks of godliness... There is no greater mark in your life and my life than the ability to forgive. Next to money, Jesus talked about forgiveness more than any other subject. You know why? Because he knows the wickedness of our hearts. He knows that the core of our heart is a desire to be significant. You see, Aretha Franklin isn't the only one who thinks respect is important. So do you. So do I. We have an insatiable thirst to have worth. 
You hear it all the time, I'll forgive them, but I'll never forget. That's not forgiveness, that's pride. One time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Master, teach us to pray. Not too far into the prayer, Jesus said, and when you pray, pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know why he said that? Because forgiveness always begins in the same place. The acknowledgement of how screwed up you are. It does. I mean, in order to forgive somebody, you've got to know I'm pretty screwed up too. You know what they said of Abraham Lincoln? His heart was as great as the world, but there was no room in it for the memory of a wrong. That's only possible by knowing how much God has forgiven you from your sins. And then recognizing that whoever has done whatever they've done to you, it's nothing in comparison to what God has done for you. You know, Corey Ten Boom used to say, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and posts a sign, no fishing. But by nature, we're all professional fishermen. We don't dredge up our own sin. Oh, no, no. We dredge up the sin of others. But Joseph doesn't. If it were me, I might have called my firstborn, I'm going to get even. If it were me, I might have said, I'm going to settle the score with those suckers. He names him I've forgotten. And there's no greater sign of a godly father than that. And then fourth and finally, notice the destiny. Look at verse 52. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Years, decades before he was disgraced, Bill Cosby was the, arguably the most famous American comedian that ever lived. Years before he was disgraced, he did a routine where he said that God was the first father. And the first father said to his first son something fathers say to their sons all the time, don't. And Adam said, don't what? God said, don't eat that fruit I told you not to eat. Adam said, what fruit? Well, God is still wondering why he didn't stop when he created the elephants. He said, the fruit right over there. A few minutes later, God looks over and sees juice running down the chin of Adam. And he says, uh, didn't I tell you not to eat the fruit? And Adam says, uh-huh. God said, then why'd you eat it? I don't know. Okay, I'm, you're out of here. I'm kicking you out of the garden, but you can go forth and multiply. And Cosby said, you know, we think that's a blessing, but it was really a curse. That simply means he, have to has, he has to have children of his own. Somebody said if raising a child was easy, it wouldn't start with labor. But notice that's not how Joseph sees it. He names his second son fruitfulness because after you get past the forgiveness and the forgetfulness, you get to fruit. 
I mean, think of it. Because of his forgiveness, the rest of his life, he is free of anger and regret. He's free of every resentment. And what flows from his life is not self-pity, it's fruitfulness. And that's where the Spirit of God will always lead you, after forgiveness and forgetfulness. We see it in Jesus' own life. In his last meeting with his disciples, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Now remember what the vine does as soon as he says it. He goes out, he's arrested, he's hung on a cross where he forgives and he forgets. And you know the result? Fruit, you and me. So how does Joseph get to this place where he can be fruitful? How does he get to the place where the rest of his life is marked by bearing fruit? He gets there by the Spirit of God making him realize in the pit who he is and who God is. You see, if it weren't for the pit, Joseph would never realize the truth. There is no godliness there is no relevance without living a life that is marked by living a little, loving a little, and dying a little. Along the way, we come to realize that God's his father, and that's way better than having Jacob as a father. You see, without the pit, Joseph would never have been who he is. Without the pit, he would never recognize that it's all God's doing. Without the pit, he'd never understand with any degree of competence what grace is. And that's why my friend the psychologist says, if I only have five minutes with a person, I'm going to ask him the same question, tell me about your dad. Can you imagine how Joseph would answer that question? When he began to talk about his real father, how about you? Think about that. Amen.